I've always dreamed of having a scene of my own, smoking dope and picking songs with Towns Van Zant, Steve Earle, and Guy Clark, back in the old Austin, before the claws of tech had sunk in so deep. Or drinking cheap wine and listening to the clattering of typewriters, with Henry Miller and Anais Nim in a flop house in Paris. Or knocking around with Godard, Truffaut, and Romare, who were high on Hitchcock and fresh off Cahiers du Cinema, and standing on the verge of unleashing the French new wave. The appeal, I think, is something between a clubhouse and a laboratory, where you band together with a few close friends and grope in the darkness toward a new kind of art, on the page, the silver screen, or coming through the speakers. Our filmmaking duo today specializes in docs about such scenes. You may know their work from Laurel Canyon or the Eagles doc, their new one, is called San Francisco Sounds, and it's a group portrait of a bygone place and time that includes such vanished mysteries as Big Brother and the Holding Company before Janus, and Jefferson Airplane before Grace Slick joined the party, as well as the poster artists, DJs, and musicians who bore witness to a hothouse of music and ideas that just after it flowered, vanished before their eyes. Without further ado, I give you a conversation with Alison Elwood and Anoush Turtzakian. Uh, so you guys both individually and together have had an interesting journey from the edit bay to the director's chair and, and back again to the, to the editor's chair. Talk a little bit about that. Um, uh, Allison, you know, to start just that, what you learn from, you know, spending so much time in the edit and you've worked with, you know, colleagues and, and friends from, you know, Alex Gibney to RJ Cutler to, we have, we, sh we share a bunch of people in common. So, um, you know, Talk about, uh, you know, what you learned in the edit bay and sort of how that has informed your, your path as a director. Well, editing, especially in documentaries, is you know, the, I think, the most important part of storytelling. The editor is the one that spends the time going through the material, going over and over it and making connections that might not otherwise be known about before take, tackling a project. And so as an editor, I knew that, you know, I was getting co-directing credits quite often because the directors I was working with understood that input. You know, the editors are key, especially in documentaries. And Anoush began as an assistant of mine. And early on, I recognized that she had what it takes to be an editor and that eventually she would no doubt become a director as well because she had such amazing story instincts. Anoush, talk about that a little bit, because there's I think there's a really cool tradition in 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 documentary filmmaking uh, where you, you know, you look back over the years of directors bringing on, you know, partners and and, and sort of co-directing, whether that's, you know, what happened with with RJ or whether that's, you know, the Maisels or over the years, you know, we have all this sort of like long tradition of kind of people bringing each other up and along for the ride. Talk about working with Allison a little bit and, and kind of what that what that journey is been for you? Wow. Um, it's very hard to put it all into one succinct little, you know, bite because it's such a, it's, you know, the, the relationship I've had with Allison has been such a, an influential one in my life and in my career. Um, like she said, I started 
as basically an apprentice and an assistant, you know, and I think it's in learning the very mechanics of organizing material that you understand how important the material is to actually inform the story and what ends up on the screen. And so I think that um, being being led into that world and being mentored through a system that um, allowed you to to label, to access, to listen. It's really about listening and, and marking and, and allowing yourself not only to listen to the material, but to listen to yourself and, and your own reactions to the material. And I think um, being let in at that ground floor and then just being able to watch and um, at any opportunity be able to flex the muscle because it really is a muscle. It's not, um, it's not just a matter of, you know, uh, being able to do something off the bat. It's about being able to work it and to learn it. And I think my relationship with Allison has been that is I've been able to grow as an editor and then also now as a director, um, being able to do it in my own way, but also um, sort of feedback with her. And that that's just been an incredible process for me. You're you're making two, I think, really astute points that I want to put a finer point on, um, which are one, I think, you know, at the core of documentary filmmaking and, and maybe any artistic endeavor, but I think it's acutely true with docs is the foundation of all of this is being able to sort of wholly give your attention to and listen incredibly closely, whether that's when conducting an interview, whether that's um, in the edit, sort of what the material wants to be, whatever your best laid plans might have been, you know, before shooting the film, but that ability to sort of sit quietly and then also listen to yourself and you and your collaborators. And I, I think that's a really, you went really right to the heart to me of what what is at the at the center of this art. Um, so, so, so thank you for pointing that out. And then the other point that you're making, which I really like is it is a, it is a muscle and it is sort of repetition and it is a lifetime of doing this. I mean, I've been watching Allison's work and in your work for so many years now. And, you know, in doing that same thing, I know exactly what you mean, where it's the methodologies that you learn and the kind of uh, sharpening and precision of your attention or your instincts, whatever it may be, that's what guides you through it. Uh, so I think those are those are brilliant and beautiful points. Um, talk a little bit because I think that we'll probably have you know a number of listeners who will know you the beginning of you guys' collaboration in some way, dating to the the magnificent Laurel Canyon. Talk about um, the journey from Laurel Canyon to this film and kind of the similarities and differences between those and what the process was of, of of getting this film off the ground? Well, we actually go back to The Eagles. Uh, Anoush was on that as well. She was an additional editor on that, started as our assistant and became an, an editor on that project as well. Another amazing, another amazing series, by the way. So, so, so thank you for, thank you for correcting me on that. I, I, very <laughs> good point. And if you haven't yet, dip into The Eagles to our listeners. <laughs> Um, when we had the opportunity to do Laurel Canyon, it was so exciting. It was a project that I personally had been interested in doing for years as a huge fan of The Doors. I sort of discovered this whole other world. And when we were first figuring out how to attack it, we realized that we wanted to have portals that would take us to this world, but that we wanted it to, to be immersive and experiential. 
which is why we ended up doing all voiceover only recordings of the artists and a lot of the people around that at the time. And our only two on-camera people were uh, Henry Diltz and Nareet Wilde. And that they were photographers who documented what was happening, but more than just documenting it, they were experiencing it with them. So they were able to bring us in. When we had um, went to San Francisco, we immediately thought of Ben Fung Torres and the posters were such a part of it. We looked into who the posters would be. And after talking to Victor, we knew he was one. What a star. What a character <laughs> he is, a by the way. Superstar. And then um, we've, you know, Dusty Street was an obvious choice as well. When we spoke to her, we knew she was in. And then Bill Hamm is just such an incredible character for the light shows and yeah, such a wonderful person to work with. And he did a light show for us for the film, which was exciting. So, so, um, there's a couple of points that you're raising there that I want to explore in a little bit more detail, which is this combination. And, and I've done a little bit of this myself, but I think the way you guys do this is so elegant and so distinctive. And you can see the similarities between Laurel Canyon and San Francisco sounds in terms of, okay, we're going to have a finite number of on-camera interviews to, to sort of bring you into this in some sort of, um, present tense on camera visual way to connect you with the material. And then we're going to also make use of these either audio only interviews or archival um, interviews, which can sort of be used interchangeably. Talk about the kind of methodology, structure, decision making around, okay, who's on camera, who's not, what are the benefits of the audio only interviews and kind of how do you come up with the recipe, you know, for this particular film? I mean, to a certain degree, the beauty of the audio only interview is that you can kind of create an amalgam narrator. And so you can really work with numerous voices in a way that if you try to put them all on screen, it would just be very difficult to, to create a succinct experience um, because you were, you would be trying to relate to all of these people on screen. Um, and I think to a certain degree, uh, once we had, I think the, the the conversations at the very beginning, we were really trying to figure out who are these characters, and as Allison said, who are on screen, and as Allison said, it, it they sort of percolated pretty quickly, and it was really about finding people who were not necessarily musicians by official vocation, but who had um, who who were artists and creative people that could articulate elements of this story that were not musical, but had a vision of it. And, you know, with the poster artist, for instance, you do, you have a visual medium that you can play with, and that gives you a much more nuanced picture of the music. And so I think that there was an element of trying to find this different medium for the portal characters, for the people on screen, that um, either as a writer or a speaker on radio or who who just had a different facility with verbal language or visual language. It's experiential too. From I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Allison, but just to, and you can jump on that. But like these are people who lived it and experienced it, but sort of not as protagonists in a way, as as witnesses, which is gives this wonderful intimacy. But go ahead, Allison. I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say it. Kind of it also by having all the musicians be voiceover only. It one it levels the playing field. Secondly, it um, keeps everybody young and as they were at the time. And it also allows us to interview Grace Slick, who we did interview, but also include Janis Joplin, who obviously we couldn't interview because she's no longer with us. So it, it, it makes everything sort of seem of one.
So what are the um, audio only interviews that are that are not archival? I mean, obviously, there's archival ones like Bill Graham, you know, who appears both on camera as well as, you know, essentially in voiceover. But what are the what are the um, original audio only interviews that you guys do for this film? I mean, there's quite a few. I mean, we, there's like a list of 20, 25 to 30, 35 of people that we actually interviewed and have their voices in. And a lot of the, the archival interviews, I mean, honestly, we, we had about 750 archival interviews that we processed wow. during the course of this entire project to mine the best takes and the best stories, people alive and people not alive. Um, and so it was an incredible process of trying to really it's, it was an archaeological dig mm-hmm. um <laughs> so you know with uh, all hands on deck um, and there's a mix match of some even though we interviewed some people sometimes they said things in another interview that they didn't say to us i noticed that i noticed that as well and i thought that was so elegantly and, and sort of beautifully woven um so when you're conducting those audio only interviews what's your process are you having people sort of like come into a particular studio i remember when we did the um uh, a, a podcast with james gay reese one of the one of the producers of amy and what they would do is okay it's a central studio and everybody comes into the same place are you traveling to individual folks and doing it at their houses or do you have kind of a hub what's the process for those audio only interviews well we were still dealing with covid keep in mind and a lot of these artists are uh, quite a bit older so we would send we had heavy pro covid protocols we testing and everything and we would send a sound recordist to them and and then uh, and then conduct some of those via zoom or whatever right well, and there's there's a really interesting kind of um, calculation also that I think allows you to spend more time in the edit, right? Which is by not burning through a jillion dollars in, in production costs, you're able to like get a much wider range and, and I would imagine spend much longer time in the edit. How much of a, of a sort of, or when you're doing the math on the front end of this is like, okay, if we do this equals more edit time and what's the most precious commodity for you guys in, in terms of, you know, the spend on any given on any given series and this one in particular. I'm going to let Anoush answer that. I'm going to say it was good for the money, but uh, bad for the brain. (laughs) I'm sure. Very very intensive, very intensive. Um, No, but I I think your point is pretty well made in the sense that like the fact that we didn't have to spend, you know, all of that on um, actual shoots and everything that goes along with it. I think um, allowed us, you know, there's archive costs, there's music costs, there's all, you know, and that's obviously the realm of the producers who are mag- magicians, to be honest, um, in making all of those, uh, you know, helping us make those decisions in the best way that we can. But, I, but, you know, we were just, I feel like to a certain degree, also lucky in that the um, aesthetics of this film really dovetailed with that particular question mark uh, money-wise. Okay, so I have two like methodology questions for you guys. Um, one is like, tell us the origin story of, of of this movie, like how it comes about, like who kind of like where does the where did the seeds of this come from, and then and the process of like, okay, are we going to the record labels? Are we going to like like what is the story of how this movie comes into the world? Well, the first part of it was um, as soon as we finished Laurel Canyon, the whole team was like, what are we going to do next? And we immediately thought of San Francisco. And then COVID happened. So it all got shifted for quite a while. 
Um, but uh, Epics did uh, Laurel Canyon with us and then they became MGM Plus and they wanted to do San Francisco. So we just went with them and then getting the labels was another trickier part of the story that you had to get everybody on board. And thankfully, John McCullough is an amazing music supervisor um, and was able to, and our amazing producers and executive producers who really worked hard to get everybody to play in the sandbox. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so my next question for you, again, is another like methodology one, which is, you know, as I was watching the film, I, I, I sort of couldn't help but begin to like, okay, so if I were doing this, how would I tackle this? And I was wondering, like, are you essentially radio cutting the film without picture in terms of knowing your like content and structure, what the pass offs are? Or are you working with picture right out of the gate? And are you like, how are you structuring it? Because like, with that volume of material, which is, you know, incredible visually, you know, in terms of audio, everything else. How do you begin that sort of winnowing process of, of arcing the narrative throughout? It's very tandem. Um, I think that there's a logic to trying to do a radio edit and then, but I think because of the nature of schedules and um, the way that you have to basically there, there is this conversation between the interview material and the stories that are being told and procuring the archive. And so if there's this amazing piece of archive um, that doesn't have a story, well, that might be an interview question. But if there's a really amazing story that has no archive whatsoever at all, and there's not even something that you can do abstractly, then it becomes a story that you may not necessarily include. And the fact that you are... Um, you know, winding and blending so many different band timelines and stories, I think that the only way to really work with it is to, to cut a little bit and interview a little bit, search a little bit, and then just keep this cycle going throughout. Um, and that's kind of what we did. And Allison and I, you know, we work very similarly in that, like, the, 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 the first thing that you really want to do is get something that is emotionally resonant out on the timeline. And even if you don't know what the whole story is or what the entire timeline is, what all the facts are, just get something that makes you feel like what the movie is going to feel like, and then just keep doing that, basically. I can give you one quick funny anecdote. I, we interviewed uh, Steve Miller, obviously, and Victor Moscoso, and both of them told the story of Steve Miller's album and the story of jumping off the boxes right. to get the, the flying thing. And I insisted that I had seen the footage, that it exists, and sent the whole team on this mad search for it. And we finally, like a month later, found it. And it was I was wrong. It was the charlatans. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. That's amazing. That's amazing. So, so we told the story graphically. So... Um... How, what is the, the the sort of production and editorial process? You started to speak to about this a little bit. Like, how long are you in production? How long are you cutting? Like, start to finish, what does it take to make this movie? <laughs> a year. Uh, yeah, it was about <laughs> and long a year. hours. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I think I think you know whatever you don't have on the back end, you're adding on top of your daily sort of you know um, life, just trying to make sure that you hit you hit all of the you know, the milestones, it's really important. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there were just to, to sort of give you an idea, there was maybe, you know, six weeks to two months ish before the edit started in earnest, where we were 
reading, studying, interviewing, doing, you know, the very first phase, a very first phase. But all of that was getting into the avid very quickly. Um, and the edit started uh, pretty quickly. So you're basically doing a lot of the processes of research, um, story research, like actual archival research and edit on top of each other all at the same time throughout the entirety of the process to make something like this actually come together. We'd listen to interviews of people that even we were planning to interview them ourselves. We would listen to see what they had covered already to know what we absolutely had to get, stories that we didn't have them tell, because sometimes we had limited time with some of these artists. What was that booking process in terms of actually like landing the people and kind of like your optimal list versus the realities of like, okay, I'm only going to get like one hour with X person or Y person, like, and, and, and who's handling the booking and how do you guys go about that? We have incredible producers that really, you know, led the way. And, and you know, obviously we're dealing with people who um, are creative and artistic and also we're counterculture and, you know, you have to actually have conversations and build trust. And I, you know, our producer Tess Franahan and, and Aaron Etikin and really had a lot of these conversations previous to our interview so that we could um, actually walk in with them having a sense of Laurel Canyon and our vision and that we were really going to try to tell their story and use their voice to give the most important elements of the, the scene, get them out there. And our executives, Jeff Pollock and Jeff Jampel, were huge in getting people. Um, we had worked with them on Laurel Canyon as well, and they both have a lot of contacts. And it, a lot of it took a lot of effort in in some cases to get people to come around, and some never did, which is too bad. Right, I mean, which which is always the case, right? I mean, it's like this, you know, where you're going out and you've got the material you're working with, the, you know, the notions that you have of who it might be, and then who wants to participate, who doesn't. But I thought. Um, you know, talk about Janice a little bit, because I thought like the um, the the interweaving and the intersection of like Big Brother's story and 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 Janice and and sort of her you know kind of iconic rise um, that was a, a particularly fascinating moment. And there is that amazing you know archival footage of her, which you use so beautifully in there. Talk about specifically kind of weaving the Big Brother Janice uh, sections of the film together. Yeah, well, it, it was really important to us to be able to tell the Big Brother story before Janice because they had such a unique identity before she came in. And that unique identity was so aligned with what everybody in the scene was working with and, and just that that ethos of experimentation and no rules. Anything goes, let's futz with the sound and, um, and try things out and mixture of genres. And so I think that was super important to us. Um, the Janice story, because it's also been told in so many different ways and, and is, is out there, I think what we tried to do was really um, try to focus on the elements of the story that perhaps weren't uh, so obvious um, and to give life to maybe some more obvious points that had never been really experienced before. But I mean, the, the scene with, you know, just speaking of portal characters and Victor, just the fact that Victor actually had seen Janice, I think that was such a, one of those moments, those light bulb moments for us where we were like, oh, he's actually, even in his memory and in his telling, he is actually <laughs> looking around the corner to see what, what he's hearing. And I think there's nothing like that. There's nothing like 
actually having somebody remember so clearly what she sounded like at such an early stage. So it's trying to find those moments. Allison, I don't know if you have. Oh, that, that's it. I mean, that Victor peering to this is such a great moment. <laughs> it's, it's his performance is, is so uh, sort of remarkable, I think, like right from the get go, because you can see not only the like vividness of his recollection and the precision of his memory, but his like deep emotional engagement is right there on the surface, too. And so it's like within, you know, 30 seconds of the movie when we see the, you know, the paintbrush and we sort of walk into his, I'm like, I love this guy, you know, instantaneously, just because he was such a character and he was so alive with the passion for it. That must have been, uh, I, I can imagine you guys being like, okay, like that's a winner we got right there when, when you have him in the cam. I don't think we knew immediately that he was going to be sh such a show stealer when we filmed it, but it was when when we started putting it together and it got tighter and tighter, we're like, whoa, he's a star. <laughs> he is a star. Talk about that too, because I think that's a really, you know, that's something that not necessarily, if you haven't spent the time in the Bay, you know, people don't necessarily know how much a performance is constructed in the edit, right? For like the, the you're sort of removing everything that, that sort of like doesn't pop to the level that it does. And talk about like building performance, you know, via the edit and how you approach that. And if you want specifically with Victor, but in general, philosophically, you know, what you guys' approaches are to that? It's a really good question. Um, you know, timing and pacing has a lot to do with it. I think if you, you know, there's a lot of dialogue editing that goes along with it as well, obviously, which is where you, you know, to a certain degree, you don't want to take out words, hums and haws and little things that make the person's uh, speech natural to them. But you also want to give them the, the you basically are what you're trying to do is create the performance that they feel they're giving to you. And I don't think any human being, even now as I speak, I feel like I'm, you know, I have a, a vision of how I'm coming across to you, but it might not exactly sound that way to you. And I think to a certain degree, my, my feeling in the chair is let me make sure that the person who sees themselves actually sees themselves by pulling out things that they may not really realize they're doing under pressure of interview, et cetera. Great answer. Any, any, any further, any further thoughts to that, Allison? I, I, it's a process of discovery with limited ma manipulation if it works. So essentially it's, it's trying to stay as true to the authenticity of that character and honor the spirit of who they are, um, you know, with sort of minimal, minimal interference, but with kind of maximum impact to deliver who, who they, you know, the, the best version of themselves in some way or another. Um, Talk about the uh, the uh, the organizing principle of this because you have such like you have all these wildly disparate elements and the kind of San Francisco sounds as an organizing principle and and I guess specifically what I was thinking about is the inclusion of Monterey pop and um, like because it is it's such a big sprawling topic in a fundamental way you have this incredible archive like what are the basic organizing principles as you guys are finding this for like okay this belongs in this movie or this is amazing but doesn't belong in this movie what is that sieve that you're using to make the determinations with something like this that has that sprawling archive that's a great question it's a tricky one to answer because it's very fluid i mean we 
we've at one point we started the film with the human being for instance and everyone was like you can't do that it's completely unearned and we're like yeah but it's very immersive you get there right away but in the end they were right it's we had to earn that moment but learning figuring out how to start something and where the dramatic moments are that make sense to shift and where we were to break part one with part two it kind of similarly came down to where we were with in in laurel canyon where just something starts to seep in and it, you, you can sense the shift about to happen talk about the part one part two of it all and, and the sort of decision to do it that way as opposed to do it as like an epic feature doc or or or, or like talk about that because i think you know it's an interesting phenomenon that we're seeing like as as documentary filmmakers where it's like okay is this a three-part series is this a feature doc is it a two-part series uh, you know what is the for for you guys and obviously there's you know financial considerations and whatever else in those but talk about the two-part series and what you think is distinctive about that and and why and how you made it work so elegantly for this? Um, I mean, I, I see it really as one long feature film that has a, a natural intermission. And again, it's finding that moment where the fissure happens and you have a story that looks like it's going one way and something happens and you go, uh-oh. And in this case, it was simply that they were discovered, that right. this magic was suddenly out in the world and then all these kids decided to come find the magic. And then, of course, it goes away because of that. Well, go ahead. What were you going to say, Anoush? Did you want to jump yeah. in? Yeah, I was just going to say that I just along those lines, too, it, 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 there's the you can lean into that in, to a certain degree, similarly to like a six part series or something like that, where you can actually have these breaks and a moment of reflection and a pause in a way that you can lean into with a two-part series that perhaps with the, with just one long string, you don't get a moment to just um, take it all in. And there is so much that we are archivally, you know, and just so many voices and so many things that we are packing into this 70 minute uh, piece that I think to a certain degree, there's something, um, there's something helpful to the brain also uh, with that break. What were the revelations for you guys? I mean, as 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 you know, fans of the music and as fans of the people, like what what did you not know? Uh, you know, or what did you what movie did you think you were make making going into it? And, and what were the t sort of turns where you're like, oh, that's interesting, or that's different from what I thought my intention was going in, or just the holy shit, that was amazing, I didn't see that coming. Like, what, what were the what were those finds for you? What were the scoops? There were so many. The early years were for me what i knew the least about um i didn't know anything about the charlatans and their story is great um i didn't know much about moby grape i had heard of them but i didn't really know their story um I, and also the interconnections of the bands like that that moby grape was instrumental down the road in forming the doobie brothers who knew that <laughs> The Moby Grape stuff was amazing because it's like I've walked in the in the like record stores and seen those album covers. You know what I mean? And then you're like, oh, that's the story. That and then the payoff was was just amazing. Uh, another one that I what I loved and thought was great was uh, the sort of Sly stuff, the Sly Stone stuff that you do in miniature of like, okay, they go into the studio and he's like, okay, you guys are fucking this up. Let me play all the instruments. And then his sort of reimagining of himself, I guess initially as DJ and then as the slide that we all know. I thought that was uh, 
it was like I had known pieces of that story and been a fan of the music forever, but I thought that was really fascinating. Um, yeah, what else? That, Any, that they else found that out? recording of, of Sly uh, talking to the Great Society and Grace Lixing. No, that was bad. <laughs> that was amazing. That was an amazing piece of archival. And I love the way it was brought in because you like lower third Sly Stone and you're just hearing him like kind of growling at them in, in the studio. And then it's the reveal of what the scene was. I thought that was so, so smart and elegant. Um, what about for you, Anush? Any, any, uh, any, what were the, what were the kind of the things that stick with you as like, oh, I didn't see this coming or that you didn't know about the story, you know, going into it? I mean, I, to be honest, I think the, the the arc of the scene in of itself, I mean, it's not one particular story, but I just feel like I don't think I knew the level of, um, you know, the, the entirety of part one, the level of uh, community that was involved in San Francisco, um, because so much of what we knew was post-Monterey. It, so much of what's out there is post-Monterey. And... Um, and I think it was it was really like Allison said it was those early years that was the most beautiful surprise and you know there were elements and little bits and pieces that I knew of it but I didn't really understand the um, the heart that was there and um, I'm so glad that we were able to find it. It's an origin myth story in some ways, right? Because it's like Monterey Pop is this thing where it's like suddenly it's injected into the zeitgeist and suddenly all the people that don't live in San Francisco that don't know about the scene, like it gets kind of massively exported to the world with these kind of, and then it does this kind of alchemical change to the to the scene, right? Suddenly when you're under the magnifying glass and 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 and, and I loved that. And, and talk about the transformations because you've touched beautifully on, okay, this is what it was in its sort of untouched, pristine state to some extent before the world was staring at it. Um, you know, talk about what you found and, and what the film shows in, in terms of the impact of suddenly when it's been exported to the world and then suddenly everybody wants a piece of it. Yeah, I mean, I think to a certain degree, even within San Francisco in that part one, there's, there is a, there's a small kernel that continues to grow and grow and grow from the small little parties that are happening in the basement of a, a house into the Fillmore and the Avalon and these larger venues and money becomes a part of it. And it's money's not necessarily a negative thing. It just changes the nature of what's going on with the art. And, you know, the, the fact that all of these bands, they're made up of, you know, six different people, each one of them, and all of them have a different focus. One of them is much more creative and much more anti-commercial. And, and one of them is a little bit concerned about paying the rent or signing the contract or making sure they don't get screwed over uh, by a record company. And I think that um, to a certain degree, all of those little elements were there in the beginning, but then once Monterey Pop happens and it's really, really clear to the nation and to the record companies that there is money to be made here, then um, all of those forces just get the volume up. And the fact that they didn't want to be stars, that they looked down upon that, and that's where the rivalry with L.A. was, the tension with L.A. rather, is that, you know, these were, you know, singer-songwriter superstars by that time, and the San Francisco folks were going, no, we don't want to be stars. We just want to play in our band and make enough to survive. And then ultimately, of course, ironically, they become superstars. Well, it's it's interesting now too. I think like revisit. I mean, I was struck by 
a kind of like an incredible nostalgia or, or, or romanticized nostalgia. You know, I didn't get to experience it. So I was like, damn, that looks like so like uh, amazing in some ways. When you think of kind of like where the world has gone, it, it's striking the innocence that you see. Um, and, and I was really kind of, you know, profoundly affected and moved by that. But like, it, but, but then at the same time, there is that collision between sort of like commerce and art, which, you know, all of us have been contending with, you know, forever since then, that feels sort of incredibly contemporary and eternal, maybe in, in some way or another. But that mix of kind of, I guess, seeing this world through the, you know, 2023 lens, Talk about that a little bit and kind of like how the world has changed and your observations on that and the feeling of what it means, because I think for many people, you're weaving a world that like maybe we didn't get to live or maybe we didn't get to experience, but here's a taste of it at a time of change and and here's where we are now culturally. So I know that's a sort of diffuse question, but whatever you want to, uh, whatever whatever you want to say on that, I'm curious what your experience was. I, they had a beautiful dream and they were finding a way to live that dream and do their art and share their art. And it was very communal. The experience was meant to be communal and the art was meant to be shared. It was, you know, like the bands would say, it wasn't even that big a deal that we were there. We were part of the light show. We were part of the dancers. It was, it was unifying. And we've become so divided now that it it's hard to even imagine that level of innocence occurring and and the obviously the music industry has changed so dramatic drastically since then but wow what a beautiful dream they they started with and you know reality collided and you know the horrible things were going on the vietnam war was going on there was horrible things going on at the time and yet they were trying to make an enclave and i guess those enclaves are never truly safe and they can always right. be or don't last you know, yeah. as, the, as, the, as the case may be. What were you going to say, Anoush? To a certain degree, it feels uh, like being able to, and I, I hope that this is something that we were able to do, is, is um, refresh the idea. So being able to actually hear it from the source and go back to these people and just get a sliver. Maybe it's nostalgia, maybe it's yearning, but I think that yearning is the beginning of hope. You know, and so I think to a certain degree, if we're able to uh, get a sense of what that was without all of the the tropiness laid on top of the hippie wear flowers in your hair um, cliche, uh, we're able to maybe just shine it up and use it to our own personal, <laughs> you know, in our own personal lives and and just remind ourselves what we're what's capable what we're capable of it goes back to your metaphor that you sort of you know used early on which is there is something archaeological about this right where it's a like recovery and a reflection and like cutting through the bullshit and the stereotypes and the tropes and being and being like hey this like was possible this did happen how can it echo over the years and i guess my final question for you guys is you know now talking about this and thinking about it what occurs to me is this is a very um, specific genre in some way that you guys are carving out, which is 
it's a portrait of a scene at a moment of uh, transition and change, kind of the before and after. It's something that we see, you know, interconnecting Laurel Canyon in this film. And I think, you know, those scenes, um, they always are existing, you know, whether it's, uh, I don't know, the 90s grunge scene or whatever that is. Can we expect more of these films from you guys? Because A, I dig them and want to see more. But like, do you guys can see yourself sort of continuing in this space and sort of, um, you know, continuing to make these like portrait of a scene films? Is there, do, is there more to come? Well, I just, we, after Laurel Canyon, we wanted to brand the A Place in Time, which is what you're referring to as these moments that happen. And there's so many of them. There's Grunge, there's Nashville, there's New York. There's so many places, there's London at, at, in various times. And sure, it would be amazing to, to continue doing this because I think it's a really interesting genre and model that we've created. It's very difficult to get these labels to agree to do this. So I, I don't know that there's, sadly, I don't know that there's much future for doing this sort of storytelling because either the budgets have to be so exorbitant um, or I don't know, somehow the playing field has to be leveled so people are willing to participate in this because it, it becomes, you know, cost prohibitive, unfortunately. You would think that the labels would have a vested interest in it, right? Because in some way, it's like you're injecting this back into the zeitgeist and whether it's, you know, causing you to turn on Spotify and listen to it or, you know, download the record or whatever it is. Like, I think it's my hope is that you can present it effectively to to the relevant folks and that they're not to me, mine hoarding of it, because it is a beautiful thing, whether that's, you know, Paris in the 20s and the sort of literary scene, like there are these moments of flourishing that you see that are always evanescent and always so like powerful but through which amazing artwork comes out and I, I just love the work that you're doing and I hope to see more of it in the future so um, I'm sending I'm sending all my good wishes and good vibes for for, for, for the next one to hopefully uh, come down the pike for us. Well, thank you so much. Thank you guys for taking the time. So glad that the film's in the world and, and so glad you're making the work that you are. I appreciate you having us on. Thank you to Allison and Anoush for making this movie and sharing your time to talk about it. Thank you to Janice and Grace and Sly Stone and everyone who crossed their comet-like paths. See you next time on the dangerous art of the documentary. The Dangerous Art of the Documentary is a Tillerman Films production. Executive producers are Tiller and Fitz. Our producer is Jacob Miller. Music by Zydapunk. The show is executive produced and distributed by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler for Double Elvis Productions. Thanks for listening, and please, don't forget to subscribe. <laughs>